Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 24. As you're doing that, there's a couple quick things from me. We are, uh, just give you a little update on the school. We uh, just finished our plans and uh, we are hopefully in process the next couple weeks of starting uh, demolition and such. So we're excited. It's going to be fun. Uh, what that means for youth group and for middle schoolers is that some things are going to change. Obviously, youth will be in the sanctuary, I think, starting uh, February. Uh, the, the, is today the last Sunday in, in January? So I think it's actually starting next week. They'll be in the sanctuary with us. And then middle schoolers were actually going to be over in the four-year area uh, during service, we'll still have middle school um, classes and such, but we're going to utilize that space for right now. Um, also, when you come in on Sundays, uh, I don't know that it'll happen next week, but the front parking lot area is going to be roped off at some point because we're going to—that's going to be our drop zone for construction stuff—and we're going to have a container out there to store some of our things and such. Um, so, relating to parking, this is super important. Are you listening? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, so you can park over at DB's over here. Um, we, we lease that parking lot. You can park over there. You can also park up behind the church at Nashville Power Sports in that parking lot. Um, and so there's a couple options for you. Uh, if you get here early enough, you probably could park here in, in the back. But uh, um, it's kind of an interesting pass, right? Because second, first service is getting out and you're having to come in. So if you time it right, if the Lord is with you, you'll find a parking spot back here. But uh, here, here's what I want to say is that we need some servants to help with, uh, with ushering people, um, you know, to and from the parking. So if you've ever had a dire a desire to drive a golf cart, we could use your help. We could, uh, you know, if you're even the youth, we're, as long as you have a driver's license and you're not crazy, you can definitely drive the golf cart and deliver people from the parking lot to the, to here. Um, so if you're interested in that, we definitely could use your help. Um, so you can go to the, the app and sign up under, you know, the servant application, just fill that thing out, say, you know, golf cart person, not guy. Cause it could be a girl too. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can golf park person. So there you go. And, uh, or you can talk to Pastor Mike and let him know. And, and we'll get you, we'll, we'll vet you. We'll put some cones out and see how, so you can weave in and out of things and such. Uh, also, if you're looking for a way to serve and you're like, yeah, I, I don't want to really commit to anything like, um, you know, where there's a lot of prep and stuff. We definitely need help with our cleaning. We have people come in on Saturdays and clean the, the, the church area before we get started. And uh, we, we've lost some people, so there's some availability there. Uh, we, we go through a, a kind of a housekeeping schedule. So if you'd like to participate in that, it's an easy way to serve the Lord and it's a blessing to the body. People don't even know how much of a blessing it is to go to a clean bathroom, right? And stuff like that. So uh, if you're interested, talk to Pastor Mike or fill the app, fill the application out on the app and we will plug you in. So Acts chapter 24, we're looking at verses 1 through 27 this morning with a message entitled, The Trial by the Sea. Stand with me once you're there. We'll read our text together. Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman named Tertullus. 
they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had uh, been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And we ask you to speak to our hearts. Lord, you have something important to say to us. Perhaps it's about the word procrastination. Are we putting something off? And we ask you, Lord, that you would draw our hearts to your word and that your spirit would speak directly to us today, that you would minister to us. We know you're faithful to speak, so have your way in us this morning. Father, we also want to lift up the Du Bois family, Tom and Anita, and the loss of their son here, part of our body. And we ask you, God, to just be with this family, that you would strengthen them, that you would comfort them, that you would give them a peace that surpasses all understanding. God, help us to be the body of Christ, to surround this family and just minister to them and uh, to love on them. And we're to mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. So Lord, as you would put it on our hearts, would you help us to be mindful of them in the coming days and weeks and months and years, Lord. So we just lift the family to you. We ask you to be with them. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So um, it's been said by someone somewhere, I think, that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are beach people and everybody else. (laughs) What do you guys think of that? Do we have any beach people here? Like, anybody a beach person? Listen, we know who you are. You have the 30A sticker on the back of your car. You're rolling in the salt life stuff all the time. Uh, You know, I know because I'm married to a beach person. I know this. Uh, You know, what's interesting about beach people is that they think that anything in life, anything life throws at them can, is better handled at the beach. Like it just, the beach makes everything better. It doesn't matter, even the hard things in life. As long as there's sand between your toes, you're good. I hate sand. It's messy. I don't like it. I don't, it's a, yeah, it's there, but I don't appreciate that. I don't, I, in fact, it makes my life miserable. Uh, I'm a mountain person. Altitude changes everything for me, but that's a story for a different day. What I know is that the Apostle Paul couldn't have handpicked a better place to go through the trial of his life than on the Mediterranean Sea, there in a beautiful palace uh, in Caesarea. It's where Paul finds himself. If you were with us last week, then you know that uh, Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin. And Lysias, the tribune, wanted to find out more about why there was such an issue between Paul and the Jews. And so he called for the assembling of the Sanhedrin, which was that 71 elder council that gathered together and they were uh, there to explain what they had against Paul. And of course, Paul uses, uh, you know, he was a Pharisee, the Sadducees and Pharisees were what made up the Sanhedrin. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew what the Sadducees believed. And so he brought up the, the conversation about the resurrection and it divided the Sanhedrin And of course, Lysias seeing the commotion and the craziness of these guys fighting amongst each other, he said, man, I better get Paul out of there before they tear him to pieces. 
And at that point, Lysias knew that this was beyond his ability to judge. He, he, this trial was over for him. Like this had to be pushed up the judicial chain. It had to go to, uh, up to the governor of Judea, who was Marcus Antonius Felix. He became the governor around 52 AD, and he reigned till somewhere around 59 to 60 AD. Felix and his brother Marcus Antonius Paulus were both slaves at one point. The story is said that uh, according to uh, Marcus Paulus, his brother was one of the favorite slaves of Claudius Caesar's mother. And so when she died, uh, he, he became a slave of Claudius and he gave him his freedom. He advocated for his brother to get his freedom. They were both given uh, choice positions within the Roman Empire. And uh, Claudia, uh, Felix was given the governing over Judea. And so uh, the historian, we talked about a little bit about Felix last week, but he was not a great guy. And in fact, the Roman historian Tacitus said that Felix exercised the royal prerogative with a slavish sense, with all manner of cruelties and excesses. Josephus described him as a licentious and base. He was a womanizer, and he loved to receive bribes. So he wasn't a fair judge, really, when it came down to things. He, he sort of governed like a slave. He was ruling over Judea here during the time of Paul. Located, he was there located in Caesarea, 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean Sea. And during this time, anybody ever been to Caesarea Marantima? Anybody ever been there? A few of you guys have. It's unbelievable. Like it is, the, the setting is stunning when you come to that place. The palace was situated uh, right on the shoreline and it overlooked the Mediterranean Sea. It was so beautiful. Paul would have been put in Herod's Praetorium, would have been right inside of that palace. It was really Herod's office. He wasn't like he was in a dungeon or anything like that. Remember, he had, he's uncondemned Roman citizen. So yes, he's in custody, but he's not in like a prison or anything. He's not roughing it by any stretch of the imagination. And we'll see here at the end here, for two years, he's given some liberties to be able to you know, minister and all of these kinds of things. But he was in a great place. There in Caesarea, there was a, an incredible, incredible amphitheater that seated around 4,000 people. Uh, there was also a hippodrome where they would host some of the Greek games that they would have there. It would, it would seat up to 20,000 spectators, and they would have chariot races. So some of you immediately think of Ben-Hur, right? And some of you are thinking Charlton Heston, and the others of you guys, who is Ben-Hur and who's Charlton Heston? I don't know, but it's okay. It's all good. But they, they did chariot races and things. So it, it's all that to say that it was a magnificent place. The Lord's taking care of Paul. Like, he's not in a bad situation here. He's safe, he's sound, but yet he's still in a trial. It's a trial by the sea. I divided these verses up into five sections as it relates to his trial. The first thing that we find is uh, the opening statement of the prosecution. Again, verse one, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you uh, we may enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, he's really laying it on him here, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. 
lies, lies, and more lies. But anyways, Paul here in Judea is been there for less than two weeks and he's already been beaten and imprisoned. This is commonplace for Paul. No matter where he goes, this is what happens. He knows to expect this, in fact. He, everywhere he goes, he's, he, he knows he's gonna get a beating and he knows he's gonna be imprisoned. And so this was just par for the course for him. Uh, it's been about 12 days now since Paul has been in, uh, in Judea, the province. He, he's spent a few days in Jerusalem, six days probably, and now it's five days further. It's, it's some, sometime around 12 days or so. We find Ananias, the high priest, coming to Caesarea to lay out the case before Felix relating to Paul. Uh, Ananias, by way of reminder, he is a, the high priest of Israel during this time. The high priests were appointed by Rome. It wasn't the Jewish people who appointed them. Yeah, they were part of the family and such, but they would appoint the man and the man would be a man for Rome. He would be pro-Rome. And in fact, many people, many of the Jews hated Ananias because, he, because of his pro-Rome policies that he would put out and such. Josephus described him as profane, greedy, and hot-tempered. He cared about himself. He was a Sadducee. And Sadducees didn't believe in any kind of eternal life or anything like that. So they were living for themselves, man. You know, they, they really didn't care. They were over the temple matters. They were the ones over when Jesus flipped the tables over. It was really the Sadducees' money pockets that were being affected there. Uh, so they were over all of that. Ananias, the high priest of that. He's not the same guy that's, that Jesus stood before. That was Caiaphas, who's, he was the son-in-law of Annas, who was really considered by the real Jews the high priest at that time. But he is appointed by Rome, and he doesn't come to Caesarea by himself. He comes with a section of the elders from the Sanhedrin, probably all Sadducees, I'm guessing, because he was a Sadducee himself. They, go, they also bring a spokesman, one Tertullus. We don't know whether he is a Roman. We don't know much about the guy. He could have been a Hellenistic Jew. What, what's certain about uh, Tertullus is that he was a lawyer. Uh-oh. They lawyered up, man. They brought somebody who understood the, the Roman law. Why? Because they wanted Paul dead. And they knew that they had to go through the system in order to accomplish that because the Jews, although they could handle religious affairs, they could not put somebody to death. And we saw that before Caiaphas when uh, they, they called, um, they couldn't put Jesus to death, so they brought him before Pilate and Pilate ruled, you know, his blood be on your hands and such. But so uh, they want him dead. So they bring a lawyer to Caesarea and he starts out with some pleasantries. You know, he's like, oh, Felix, you are so great. Like, we're so amazed by all the incredible things that you've done for Judea. I mean, we are just better people because of you, you know? Uh, and, and so he's, he's really laying it on him. He's, he's buttering the guy up. Don't think for a second Felix doesn't see through that, but he's kind of like, oh, oh stop it, keep it coming, you know? I mean, that's, that's kind of how, how he's doing this. Uh, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't necessarily... Um, he, does, he, he doesn't necessarily reject it, but he knows it's flattery. You got to be careful with flattery, don't you? Because generally speaking, uh, flattery is really lies. You, the truth is told behind the scenes when you're not around. That's really what people think of you. Uh-oh. Hey, the Bible tells us this. Beware of flattery. And in fact, the psalmist said it like this. He said, for there is no truth in their mouth. 
Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Jesus tells us that we're to beware when people speak well of us. Why? Because it probably means we're not living like we're supposed to. When you live for the truth, when you stand for Jesus, people don't speak well of you. It's not popular. I don't know if you know that. Look in our culture today. It's not popular. And in fact, we talked about this last week, but you're the problem, actually. That's what our culture says. Christians are the problem. In fact, to be more emphatic, it's white Christians, really, ultimately is what the problem is. Whoa, did he just say that? I did. That's what they're saying. I'm just repeating other people, folks. But here's the reality. Jesus said, Luke chapter six, verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their father did to the false prophets. You stand for the truth, then you're gonna be rejected. People aren't going to speak well of you. Jesus said the only people that were spoken well of from the prophets were the ones that were the false ones. Reality check. Apparently, Felix, again, doesn't mind the flattery. The opening statement is finished. Now the charges are presented. Look at verse four. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in charge, in the charge, affirming that these things were so. So Tertullus is accusing Paul of three specific things. He's accusing him of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. First, sedition. He says that Paul was a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. The word stir up here in the Greek is kineo, and it means to move, shake, or agitate. In the low uh, Ninda English uh, lexicon, Greek-English lexicon, it says it's a marker of a causative relation with implication of significant activity. What does that even mean? It means he's the cause. He's the reason for what? For the riots. Paul's the problem. If we get rid of Paul, we get rid of the problem. What Tertullus is doing is he is positioning Paul as a violator of the Pax Romana. What is that? That's Latin for Roman peace. During this time, in, the, in early Christianity, Rome was under a law called the Pax Romana. It was Roman peace. Uh, it started in 27 BC uh, by way of Augustus, and it remained until the death of Marcus Aurelius in 180 AD. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, that happened around 180 AD. Marcus Aurelius died, and of course you're going to watch Gladiator to get your uh, Roman history. Why wouldn't you? You would do that, of course. Why? It's the, it's the way we do things. But uh, that, that would be the end of the Roman peace. But that was for 200 years or so. There was, there was a law in the Roman Empire, which was the known world, by the way, that you were to live at peace. You weren't to cause problems. And if you caused problems, if you were a person who was a, someone creating riots and such, you would be dealt with by death generally. That's what would happen to you. So what Tertullus is doing is saying, Paul is violating the Roman law. He's a violator of the Roman law. You should put him to death. Little do they know that Felix 
has been given inside information from Lysias. We saw it last week. He wrote him a letter when Paul was sent up to Caesarea, and he told him exactly what the issue was. Paul has not violated our law, purely. It's only theirs. And in fact, Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 23, verse 29. I, this is Lysias' words to Felix. I, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. Not only does Felix have this information, but he also knows that Paul is a Roman citizen, and therefore he's protected by uh, the Roman rights that a person would have. Now, that didn't always uh, play a role in, in these courts and such, but in this case, it probably would have. Here, Felix is um, it seems like he's on thin ice because we see after two years of Paul being there, he's, he's yanked out of power. We'll see that in a minute. So he's trying to mitigate this situation. He's in a tough spot. He's got to satisfy, he's got to keep the peace with the Jews and he doesn't want to violate the rights of this Roman citizen here. And so they're telling him, hey, Paul is a riot. He's, he's a ringleader, he's a rioter. He's guilty of sedition, and yet the claim is unsubstantiated. Paul will address it in just a second. Secondly, they accuse him of sectarianism. Tertullus claims that Paul was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and if you've been with us, you remember that the Jews from Asia were going around uh, trying to make it known in, uh, you know, Ephesus and Macedonia, Achaia, that Christianity was a different sect of Judaism. Remember that? And what that meant was it was illegal to practice because Rome approved all religions. You couldn't just believe what you wanted. You didn't have the rights to do that. You had to, you had to fall within the approved list of religions. And one of those approved was Judaism, uh, the, the Romans considered Christianity a sect of Judaism, but what Tertullus is saying is, no, it's not. He's a sect of the Nazarenes. He's trying to separate Christianity from Judaism, making it a violation of the Roman law. We'll see Paul address that in just a second. Finally, Tertullus accuses Paul of sacrilege. He said he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Uh, you know, he, he, he tried to make the temple unclean. You recall what happened there when Paul came to Jerusalem. He was there to worship, and uh, he saw some, some of the Jews from where? Asia. Man, these guys are, they're, they're crazy to kill Paul. They want him dead. They don't like him at all. He really ruffled their feathers to the point that they would follow him around. But they were probably in Jerusalem for, a, a, for probably the Feast of Pentecost at that point. But... They saw him, and then they, tried, they saw Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. They knew he was there, and then they started spreading some false accusations that Paul had brought a, a Gentile into the Temple Mount, and that's what created all of this mess. All that's going on as a result of those, do you have any Jews from Asia in your life like that were just causing problems in your life? Paul had them, and he dealt with them. Uh, he let the Lord deal with them. And the Lord handled that for him. And the Lord will handle that for you. Here's the point is, you stay on task. You don't get, you don't get off track because of other people. You stay the course. Paul's staying the course here, regardless of these accusations. But that's why he's here. They're saying he tried to defile the temple. He did not. Again, these are all, all lies and such. 
Uh, and, and if you have a New King James or a King James version, then you'll notice that there were some verses that I didn't read because the ESV version does not contain uh, verse seven and the first part of uh, verse eight in your, in your Bible. So <clears throat> regardless of what version you have, you'll notice if, if you don't have verse seven, there'll be an asterisk after verse six and it'll, it'll lead you to a footnote. You should read those footnotes because they're there for a reason. They explain why that verse isn't in, uh, like, for instance, the ESV version. It's not in the ESV version because it wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts. The way that the ESV is translated is it utilizes, it's called the critical text. It only utilizes things that, they, that were found in the earliest of the manuscripts that they had. So it was a, a, lot, less, a lot more selective in the, what they included as scripture. The King James, the New King James Version, are, use what's called the majority of text. And so whatever scriptures were found, um, whatever manuscripts, they were all lumped into one thing and they included all of it um, so long as they could, you know, kind of prove that they were the word of God. That's the difference between the versions of the Bible. Here's what I'll tell you, though, is that none of this, it, none of this changes the truth whatsoever at all. And in fact, I'll read for you what it says in the King James, New King James. So you can see it's, it's probably a scribe's note that got included, but it said this, but the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. It's not doctrinal at all by any, and, and none of the, these kind of footnotes are. That's why you should read them so you know. But, but ultimately, it's just adding some detail to what was happening there. And that did happen. That is exactly what happened. They just left out the part that they were beating the tar out of Paul and, uh, before that Lysias came and grabbed him. And the fact that they were gonna kill him again in the Sanhedrin meeting, but he was rescued by Lysias. They just happened to leave that out. And then they go on in verse eight to say, hey, if you'll just examine Paul yourself, you'll see that what we're saying is true. And at that point, the elders... Uh, from the Sanhedrin jump in, and they're like, yeah, that's a, it was absolutely true. Listen, this is not Felix's first rodeo. He, he's been through these kinds of trials before, and uh, I'm sure the malarkey meter is going off in him. He's beep, 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 we know. So, so he turns to Paul, and he nods, and he says, it's your turn, sir. Paul, with his opening statement, listen to the difference of the opening statement of the Apostle Paul here, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, not Johnny Depp, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Tertullus, oh, Felix, you're so great. We're so, you're such a wonderful leader and we're grateful for everything. Paul's like, you've been governing here for many, many years, so I will now cheerfully give my defense. What, what is he doing? Paul is not... Uh, giving uh, him any flattery whatsoever, but he is giving him facts. Here's the facts. You've been a ruler here for many years. In other words, you understand the game that's being played here. You've been in Judea. You understand the Jews, you know, and, and how they push their agenda and all of these kinds of things. So I, I can trust that you understand what's going on here. And uh, by the way, Paul has his faith 100% in the word that he received from the Lord last week that said, you're going to Rome. He has nothing to worry about. So he's like, I, I, I know that you can see through the lies here. 
Uh, so therefore, let me cheerfully make my defense. And then Paul goes on to refute the charges that were brought against him, verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and, the, and written the prophets, having a hope in God, which makes, men, um, them, which makes these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always make pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. So the first accusation that Paul refutes here is the accusation of sedition. I'm not a troublemaker. Listen, I showed up. Verify this. Here's reality. I showed up in Jerusalem 12 days ago, literally, to worship God. We'll see here in a second, he's also bringing alms to the poor. He's not there to cause problems. He's not there to teach against uh, the Judaism or anything like that. In fact, he's there to worship. And what they found him doing was he was in the temple in a state of purification under a Nazarite vow, paying for four other people to go through the Nazarite vow, minding his own business and such, and he gets, all of a sudden, he's wrapped up into all of this chaos, not by himself, but by the Jews uh, from Asia. Paul didn't create this problem. He's not a troublemaker. He's, not, he, he's a man of peace. And in fact, he goes, go around to the synagogues. Go around in the city and, 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 and such, and ask other people. I wasn't creating any problems whatsoever. Paul says they cannot prove what they're saying. But I encourage you to go ask people that were there because I wasn't doing this. Secondly, he answers the accusation of sectarianism. Paul confesses to Felix, this is important to note, I do belong to the way. I'm not... I'm not saying I'm not a Christian. I do belong to the way. Listen, there may come a point when you have to, you have to reveal that you are a believer. You should, I mean, that should be upfront. You should, you know, in fact, people should know it by the way you live your life. You know, the worst compliment you can ever get in your life is, hey, I didn't know you were a Christian. <laughs> oh, oh no. You didn't know I was a Christian? What is that saying? That's saying, I'm not living a life that would impact somebody else's life that they would even be aware that Christ might be in my life. Uh, you know the saying, uh, share the gospel and use words if necessary. Um, you know, yeah, but no. I mean, you should use words. People should know. And in fact, yes, the way you live your life, I understand the statement and, and such, but, but you should also use words. People should know where, you're, where you are it, it, with Christ. We're called to go into all the world, man. Do you imagine Jesus just walked around and he didn't say anything? How would people come to Christ? How would people have known what he taught? Yeah, they would have seen some example of it, but we should, in fact, use words. Paul is saying, I'm a believer. I belong to the way. I love the description of Christianity in the New Testament that in the, in the early church, it was the way. It wasn't Christian they, they did use that term, but, but in this day and age, that term is so diluted, I'd rather go back to the way. 
Hey, I'm part of the way. What do you mean? You know, the way. John, uh, John uh, what is it, 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm part of that way. Here's the problem with the word Christian is that the Jehovah Witnesses call themselves Christians, that the Mormons call themselves Christians. Um, and, and so you and I call ourselves Christians. The problem is there's three different Jesuses in this, in this conversation. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being, that he, was ne- he, he, he wasn't you know, God eternal. They believe that he's a man, right? The Mormons believe that Jesus is some spirit child of heavenly father and heavenly, and, and heavenly mother. I don't know where they get that. They just made it up. But, but here's the reality is, we believe in the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is God in the flesh, that he came down. You see the problem with the word? It's, it's not definable in, in our culture today. People don't know what that means. Follower of what Jesus? And so it's a problem. So we're, we're going to just all adopt the word. The way. No, I'm just kidding. Do what you want. But that's my own personal thing. I love the idea here of the way. But what was being said of Paul as he started a new sect. It wasn't part of Judaism. It was its own separate thing. But Paul says, no, no, it's not a sect. It's not a sect. And in fact, I worship, listen to the words, the God of our fathers. Well, who's the ours? The God of the, the, the Sadducees and mine. It's the same God. We're worshiping the same God. Paul's, not, Paul's saying, hey, we're a, we're, if we're a sect, we're a sect of Judaism. And that totally makes sense because guess what? The Messiah is promised through Israel. You know, and in fact, if Paul could easily define himself as a completed Jew, that would make total sense. And that's when, when you talk about a completed Jew in this culture today, you're talking about a Messianic Jew, someone who believes that Jesus Christ is Messiah. And the, the Bible tells us that we're grafted in. You know, you and I as Gentiles, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. We're all in Christ. Christ is the focus. He's the Messiah. But he did come through Judaism. And, and you know, when I was in Israel one time and I was at a t-shirt shop talking to this guy, I was talking to him about the Lord. And he goes, you know, there's one thing that I appreciate about Christians. We do worship the same God. And I said, bingo, dude. You just need to believe in Jesus and you'll be good, you know? Uh, but no chance. Anyway, Paul is saying, listen, I worship the same God as you. And he goes on to say, I believe in the same things you believe in because they're written where? In the law and the prophets. Paul wasn't teaching against the law at all. He wasn't teaching against the prophets. He was just saying, here's Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those things. You know, Jesus said that. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, listen, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is simply saying, I came to fulfill everything that the Old Testament spoke of. 
both the law and the prophets. I am the fulfillment of all of that. Now we look to him. The old covenant has been satisfied in Jesus Christ, and he's given us a new covenant through his blood that we can find redemption in him. What a beautiful thing. But he was not teaching something different. He was simply saying, I am the fulfillment of these things. Isn't it interesting here that Paul goes in verse 15, having a hope in God, listen, which these men, and he's almost like he points at the Sadducees in the room, which these men accept, uh, themselves accept. They accept the word of God. They do. And in fact, part of the Sanhedrin was, they were Pharisees. They believed in the law and the prophets. Paul is saying, some of the, those on the Sanhedrin, they also believe the same things I'm believing. They just don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. But when, when they believe the Messiah comes, they're going to say the same things I'm saying. Because that's what the law and the prophets say. There is a resurrection. And my hope is in God relating to that. And Paul will go on to talk about the resurrection of the dead. And he talks about, for not just the just, but the just and the unjust. He speaks about the ramifications of rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord right here in his defense. And it's, it's not necessarily even there. He is laying a witness before these people at the same time defending himself against what's being said. It's so interesting. Listen, the prophets spoke about resurrection. You have to deny the Old Testament to deny the resurrection. In fact, Job 19, 25 through 27, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has, uh, my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Isaiah wrote about the resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and those who sleep, um, the, and oh, I'm sorry, I skipped it. And the earth will give birth to the dead. He's talking about a resurrection. Daniel talks about a resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verse two. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame in everlasting contempt. Paul is referring to the prophets relating to the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Everybody's gonna stand before God one day. Nobody gets a pass. Everybody will stand before the Father and give an account for their life. Um, those who, both who are justified in Christ and those who are not. And Jesus said it himself in John chapter five, Verses 27 through 29, he said, and he has given him authority to ex execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And again, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. This is serious business. Like what Paul is saying here has eternal ramifications. He's talking about the judgment of the just and the unjust. Judgment of believers and unbelievers. 
there's two different judgments happening in, uh, you know, in, in the afterlife, folks. One for believers, it's called the Bema Seat Judgment. For you and I, we're not going to stand before the Lord and give an account for our sin. Our sin has been dealt with at the cross. Jesus Christ wiped our sins away. When, when he said it was finished, like he wasn't kidding, it's over with. Your sins are wiped away. You're not, you're not going to stand before God and he's going to say, well, you did this wrong and you did this wrong and you did this wrong. He sees the righteousness of his son when he sees you. When you stand before him, what he will be judging you for is what you did with your life after you were born again. What did you do with the time that God gave you? How did you live for Christ? What are the works that you did relating to Christ? When James was saying, show me, my, uh, show me your faith and I'll show you my works, he's speaking about after Christ, there should be some evidence of our salvation in the way that we are living our lives. Uh, you know, Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created beforehand that we should walk in. God has good works for us to do and we will be judged for those good works. And here's what's interesting about it is we'll be rewarded. It's not like he's coming down on us. He's re it's like a reward ceremony, really. How is it that we get rewarded for the works that God created us to walk in and gave us the power to do it? Isn't that interesting? It's, it's mind-boggling to me. It's like, you know, it's like you taking your little toddler who's learning to walk and you're walking with, no, look at your walking. And then, and then you're, you're walking him. He's not walking. But you're walking him and then, and then you go, oh, good job. Here, here's a reward for you. You did it. He didn't do it. You did it, but he gets rewarded. That's what it's like. Isn't that cool? God is so good in that way. But, but it's, it's serious business. It's a, it's a judgment of our works. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 3, verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In other words, your works will be tested, yes, by what you've done, but by the motive in which you've done it too. Like, who were you doing it for? Were you doing it for the Lord or were you doing it for yourself? Did you get a pat on the back? Then you've had your reward. And it's wood, hay, and stubble, and it will burn up. But if, if, you're, if you're doing your work for the Lord, and you're not receiving the glory, but you're giving it to the Lord, there will be something left when it passes through the fire. That's what he's talking about. Verse, um, verse 14, and if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here we have uh, a ceremony happening post-life here in this world, here in this life, where the Lord himself will judge your works. This is for believers. But there's also another judgment that the Bible speaks about, and it's for the unjust, and it's found at the great white throne judgment. This is, in, this is judgment for people's sin. This is the Lord telling people who rejected Christ, here's the ramifications of the lifestyle that you lived. And he goes on in Revelation. Uh, this is spoken of by John in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, uh, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, hell is a real place. It's a real place that the Bible speaks about. In fact, Jesus, a lot of what he taught was uh, about hell, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talked about utter darkness is what hell really is. The absence of God, which is the absence of light, which is utter darkness. Have you ever been in a place where it's just pitch black, where you can't even see the, isn't it frightening? I was in India one time and uh, the guy goes, hey, you know, get situated. You don't want to be walking around when we shut the generator off. And I go, what do you mean? And he's like, and I was like, whoa, it is so dark. And I was trying to see my hand. I couldn't. And then all of a sudden my heart started beating like that. You know, I'm like, dude, are you afraid? Are you afraid, little Timmy? Let me help. No, I'm just, I start talking to myself. I try to walk myself through this. I'm trying to get my brain wrapped around the darkness here. But that's kind of like what it was. It's kind of like what it will be, like the absence absence of light. And by the way, it is eternal, contrary to what many people in the church are trying to say this day and age, trying to bring up this idea that hell is not eternal. The Bible says it's eternal. It talks about it. And people are changing their positions on that. Preston Sprinkle and a bunch of other people changing their ideas about what the traditional view of hell. Listen, the Bible speaks about it being eternal. I don't know what else to tell you. Here's what I will tell you is, regardless, you don't want to go there. It doesn't matter if it's temporary, if it's eternal, you don't want to go there. And you don't have to go there. In fact, the Lord is giving you an opportunity for your name to be written in the book of life. In fact, it comes through Jesus Christ. That's really his goal for you. His goal is that you would have life and that more abundantly. That's why Jesus came. He doesn't want anybody to be separated for all of eternity. He's made a way for us. We don't have to be. But here's the reality is that true love requires a choice. If you don't have a choice, if you're just destined for this or that, then that's not love. Uh, and, And so God is love. That's the definition of God. And that requires you and I to have a choice relating to our eternity. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go there. You can choose to go to hell if you want by rejecting Jesus. That is, by the way, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that to say? That's to say that the Holy Spirit is drawing everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God desires for you to have life and that more abundantly he's done all the work for you but he will not force you to kneel at the cross, folks. He won't make you do it. He's given you that option. He's, t- he's done everything that he can f- except force you to believe. And if he's speaking to your heart this morning about that, don't put that off. You wanna respond to the Holy Spirit this morning. You want to receive 
Christ. And I'll tell you this, it's not enough to believe that Jesus lived. That's not enough. Hey, even the devils and his angels believe and tremble that Jesus was a real person, that he existed and that he came and such. That's not enough. The Bible says we have to confess him as Lord. He has to become the Lord of your life. If you want the covering of Christ on your life, if you want your sins washed away, he has to become the Lord of your life. And you know what? You'll never live perfectly. Aren't you glad it's not based on you, but it's based on what he's done? Like your salvation isn't based on you. It's based on him. But I'll tell you, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. Like there should be a desire in your heart to live for the Lord. There is a requirement for you, and it is to bow before him and make him Lord of your life. That's, that's the only requirement for you and I relating to salvation is that you give the life that he created over to him, that he could use it for his glory. Hey, don't put it off. You don't, have, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You know, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want to encourage you this morning, take this serious. Paul said, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Eternity is at stake. It's worth pondering for a little bit. It's worth considering uh, where you stand relating to this resurrection that Paul is, is speaking about. Paul says, I, that's why I take it so serious that I, I, I take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Like he lived his life in such a way, he tried to be mindful of these things and he wasn't perfect. But he, did, he was mindful about the resurrection and that one day he would stand before the Lord. This brings us to the third refutation, which is that of sacrilege. Look at verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul came to Jerusalem to worship God, and it says here to bring alms. He had been collecting alms for years, for several years, it says, the heart of the apostle Paul, thinking about other people, you know, thinking about the poor people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem that's suffering. And he's just going around to the other churches and saying, man, if you could give anything, you could spare anything for the church in Jerusalem. And he would carry that, um, you know, throughout his missionary, third missionary journey, all the way back to Jerusalem. Just an outstanding heart for people. And he said, man, I showed up in Jerusalem and I was here to worship God and to deliver the, this, these alms to the poor. Ask anybody that was there. And in fact, the people that really should be on trial here are the Jews from Asia. They're the ones that stirred up the problem here. And yet, they're not here. Where are they? You should ask them. Uh, and yet, my accusers aren't here. And the only thing that I'm, that I'm accused of relating to the men standing in this room, speaking to the Sanhedrin, the high priest and those who were with him is this statement that I believe in the resurrection from of the dead. That's the only thing that I said that they would have anything to say about and that's, that's not even condemnable. Who cares what you believe about that? And they want him dead. Paul has made his case. It's like, it's like in this moment, it's like he's saying, 
man, I rest my case. I've said, I've said it all. You can see right through it. These guys are liars just like their father, the devil. And you can see through these things. Paul's not sacrilegious. He didn't come to violate, um, you know, the, the temple or he didn't come to, um, you know, create some new sect that he was trying to derail Judaism. He also didn't come to stand against Rome and all that they stood for. He, he had one purpose in his life and it was to represent Jesus Christ everywhere he went. And that should be your purpose. We should be living in the same manner. Gospel-centric people focused on on Jesus Christ and him crucified and not get sucked into all the other things in this life that will draw us away from our one mission, which is to make Christ famous. I rest my case, Paul says. And now we find the posture of the judge, verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix, uh, it tells us here that he knew, he, he knew quite a bit about Christianity. He, he knew, uh, he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Like this wasn't something that came outside of nowhere for him. He had a very good understanding about Christianity. And in fact, in a couple chapters, we'll see when Paul stands before Agrippa II that he also has an understanding of Christianity. These guys who were ruling in Rome, they understood uh, what Christianity stood for. They understood that it was a sect of Judaism because it was relating to the same God. It's just a fulfillment of a promise that they were waiting on, which is the Messiah. And so, Felix says, I'm not going to judge this case. How convenient for, for Felix to do that because he's in a pickle here. It doesn't matter what he judges on here. He's in, he's a, he has a problem. He's just trying to do his best to keep the peace. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a spineless way to handle a, a case here because he's not really standing for the truth, is he? What he's doing is protecting his job. And he doesn't do a very good job of that because two years from now, he'll be removed. Probably because the Jews from this trial go and appeal up the chain, maybe to, all the way to Rome, to Caesar. And they say, man, this guy is not trying this case accurately. We want him removed. He's not good. He's, he's allowing all kinds of havoc to take place here in Judea. We want somebody else and they replace him with Festus here. We'll see. What's interesting about this is that he put it off. And I wonder if, if the Lord isn't speaking to you this morning about, are you putting anything off? Like, does the Lord have something in your, on your path that you're supposed to be doing that you're like, I'll do it later. I'll get to it later. Because it might ruffle some feathers and it might, you know, you might have to stand for something and uh, I'll, I'll share with them later. Or I'll, I'll make that stand later, whatever. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you today about, hey, it's time to make a stand. We can't do this stuff later because later may never come. And you know what? God wants our obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Do what he tells you to do. And you know what? You'll see amazing things as you walk. Uh, and what, what will happen is as you walk in obedience to the Lord, 
He'll give you a little bigger things. He'll entrust you with more. And then as you do that, he'll entrust you with more. And you'll be able to be used by God in significant ways. But it starts with the little things. Don't despise the days of small things, the Bible says. Why? Because it's in those things that you're proving who God is to yourself, really. That's what you're doing. And you're walking by faith. And the Lord is building you up. And he's going to use you in significant ways. Well, Felix gives Paul some opportunity to have some liberty. He said, hey, remember, he's not condemned, so he's a Roman citizen. He has those rights protecting him. He can't be bound because that's against the law. Uh, so Paul has sort of kind of got a, a free, you know, stay for two years at the beach. I mean, that's pretty awesome. You know, he, he can't just go and start a fourth missionary journey or anything like that, but, but he, he has a lot of freedom, and you know what's interesting? I think the Apostle Paul was doing in that two years. I think he was not wasting his time. I don't think he was off track in what God called him to do. And in fact, when we go to heaven one day, and you're gonna be like, hey man, where are you from? Man, I was, I was a Roman soldier at Caesarea. And I'm like, whoa, how'd you get saved? You know, this guy, Paul, he was there for two years. He was just sharing Jesus with everybody. Like you couldn't hear, uh, you know, anytime you'd go outside, you hear this guy talking about Jesus to a crowd of people there. That's probably what he did. Not only was he evangelizing probably to all of the Roman soldiers there, but he was also discipling people. They allowed his friends to come to him and he was able to minister and they were able to minister to him. And so he had this kind of freedom. God was taking care of Paul in the midst of his trials, but Paul wasn't wasting the trial is the point. Hey, listen, there's a trial in your life. There, there has been, you're in one, or there will be one. But here's what I'll tell you, is that don't waste it. Don't waste it. Don't get sucked into the mindset of, um, you know, self-focused living, where it's all about you and it's navigating around your life. Dude, what's God trying to do in your life? What is he trying to show you in the midst of your trial? It's, it's all the devil. Okay, well, that could be, but here's what I'll tell you is God's doing something in the midst of that. What the, what the enemy means for evil, God does what? Uses it for good. I, I like to think of it as God has me here because he's trying to teach me something. God's trying to strengthen me in a different way. He's trying to reveal a new attribute that I don't know anything about, and, and he's gonna use this to do it. God is positioning me in this moment to be a voice box for him because this is the way that he's gonna get me into this person's life so that I can speak to them. And it might come with some pain, but it's worth it in the end. Don't despise your trials. God's doing something through these things. Paul didn't use his liberty to live for himself. I don't think. I think he really lived for the Lord. Well, uh, Felix wasn't done hearing from Paul. Look at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. If you guys are any pregnant ladies here looking for some names for their, their, their daughters, Drusilla is a great name. Uh, you can go ahead and use it. You'll never find a, any kind of pendulant or, ma or license plate with Drusilla's name on it, though. So that would be a downside. But, but after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for, for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. 
So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. It's interesting that uh, Felix was married to a Jewish lady named Drusilla. Drusilla was given over in, uh, to, to somebody else to be a, a wife of a different king when she was 14 years old. And this king uh, was a king in Syria, and he became a proselyte for her, actually. He converted to Judaism because her family wouldn't allow her to uh, marry a Gentile. So he converted over, just for their purposes, just ceremonially, probably. She was a wild child, I think, because, uh, you know, somehow her and Felix crossed paths, and he was a womanizer, and he drew her right out of that relationship into a marriage with him when she was 16. So she's been with him for like four years or so. She's maybe around 20 years of age at this point. Her, uh, Dr- Drusilla's dad was Herod Agrippa I. You guys remember him from Acts chapter 12? He was the guy that killed James, the brother of John, and then he imprisoned Peter, and his intentions were to kill Peter, uh, Peter as well. And Remember the angel came while Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, just totally at peace. And the angel unshackled him and told him to get out of there. Well, after that, Agrippa, it tells us in Acts 12 that he goes up to Caesarea. And one morning, Agrippa is coming out to give an oration before the people there in that amphitheater. And it tells us that he put his royal robes on, which were lined with like silver and gold and such. And when he sat in the sun that day, he shimmered, and, the, and he gave a great speech. And at some point during that time, the people were so enamored with the situation and with his words that they began to speak the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. And at some point in that moment, Agrippa said, you're right, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And when he received God's glory, it says the angel of the Lord touched him and he started to die immediately as uh, parasites started to eat his innards out. Pretty awesome. So that's her dad. I say that to say she, she understands Christianity. She's been around it. She knows this stuff. She's, she's seen it, but she's intrigued. And some people believe it's her that's causing Felix to, to call Paul, but it says that they wanted to learn more about the faith in Christ. Isn't that interesting? Tell me more about the Lord. What an opportunity Paul has here. And so he gives them a three-point sermon. Really quickly, he tells them about righteousness, about self-control, and about judgment. And, And as he's talking about righteousness, the idea is that no one can come to heaven without righteousness. You have to have true righteousness in order to get into heaven. And Jesus would tell us that it cannot come by our works, period. He said in Matthew 5, 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's telling them, he's telling his disciples, it's impossible to come to heaven through your own works. Well, I'm a good person and I think if I do all the, no, 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 that's, that's a humanistic a position on salvation that will fail you. It will lead you straight to the pit of hell. You're, you're, the Bible tells us that our best works are like filthy rags before God. None of us are righteous. We need 
true righteousness, which is given to us through the Son of God and His perfect works. He takes your regs of your filthy rags and he puts on you a robe of righteousness. And now when the father sees you, he sees his son and he sees his son's righteousness. You can't come to heaven. The Bible tells us that, uh, the, 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 that it, the unrighteous will not inherit, emphatic, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You need the righteousness of Christ. And no doubt Felix is getting uncomfortable. He says, hey, Paul, can you move on? Well, let's talk about self-control. Uh, you you wife-stealing, uh, you know, licentious, you know, person and he and he so he he goes on he tells him about self-control what is self-control it's a fruit of the spirit is what it is you're not going to ever have true self-control if it's not birthed by the spirit of god and by the fruit of the spirit which is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law self-control comes by the spirit of god Paul, that's enough. Move on. Well, let me tell you about the coming judgment. Just Let me just end with a little light conversation about the coming judgment that Hebrews chapter 9 verse 21 says that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Felix, you're going to stand before God one day. Drusilla, you're going to stand before God one day. What will he say to you? What's he going to say? And, and, and it's at this moment where Felix is so convicted by the Holy Spirit that he says, go away. Go away. I don't want to hear anymore. I can't hear anymore. And understand, when people say that to you, when they reject the gospel, it, it's because of the conviction of the heart. They, they don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anymore because you're going to have to make me think about this stuff. I don't want to think about it. But the Lord just will keep after them because he's the hound of heaven and he loves people. But we, we gotta be faithful to deliver these, the message that God has given us, that it's, righteousness is required. Everybody's gonna stand before the Lord one day and it says for two years he would call Paul and he would talk to him. Yeah, maybe because he wanted to get a bribe, but Paul saw it as an opportunity. Was Paul there for two years? Uh, you know, because of this trial, was Paul there for two years to minister to Felix for two years straight to tell him about Jesus and that God could forgive him for his sins and all of these kinds of things? You know, will Felix be in heaven? Who knows? We don't know what he, what he did with the gospel. There's no indication that he received it here, but you never know. You don't know. But Paul was faithful. And what we'll see here is after two years, uh, Felix is succeeded by Festus. And uh, as Paul comes before Festus next week in our passage, we'll, we'll see he makes that famous statement, I appeal to Caesar. So let me ask you this morning before we close, what is the Lord saying to you today about eternity? Where do you stand with the Lord? It's something that you should consider. And if the Lord is convicting your heart this morning, um, and, you, and you're like, well, but I think I'm a Christian. Um, but yet at the same token, you're kind of like going, man, I don't know. I think I need to receive Christ. Let me, let me just explain something to you. That only happens for a few reasons. It can happen to somebody who has never really spent enough time in the word of God to gain assurance of your salvation. In other words, we gain assurance of our salvation over time as we read the word of God, Right? 
we gain assurance as we continue to read the word of God and we understand that it's all about what Christ has done and that I can't contribute to that. We lack assurance when we don't understand the gospel. And we think that, that, that salvation is somehow tied to the way that we live our life. It's not. If it is, we're all in big trouble. That's all I have to say, but it's not. When Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. He paid the price. Now, again, that's not a license to go do whatever you want. If you're really in Christ, you're gonna wanna live that way. But if you lack assurance of salvation today, it's possible because you don't understand the promises of God. You've not spent enough time in the word of God. It's like you might've said a prayer and, and received Christ and he may have come inside of you. You know, the Holy Spirit may have sealed you, but you lack that confidence in your salvation because you're not spending enough time in the word. Hey, this is how we get assurance right here. Page by page. The discipline of reading God's word. That's how you get assurance. You know, the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart is what I know. And he'll tell you where you're at. You know, just because you said a prayer doesn't mean you're saved either. You know, at the end of the day, where is the evidence of your salvation? That's what you need to ask. I only say this because eternity is at stake and it's important, right? And we're, we're living in a, a day and an age where, uh, you know, the gospel is so watered down and, and people don't have a clear understanding. Discipleship is so lacking. People aren't really growing in Christ, so I want to encourage you today, man, if the Lord's knocking on your heart and you're not sure, you're not absolutely sure that you're going to heaven, that you would receive Christ this morning. I don't care if you said the prayer 10 times. Here's what I'll tell you is that may this be the, may this be the flag in the sand that says, yeah, I'm going to commit myself to Jesus, but then I'm going to grow so that I can have that assurance of faith, the security. You're in his hand. It's his hand. Not your hand, his hand. And he holds you in it. Are you in Christ this morning? If you are, hey, praise the Lord. Are you living for him? Are you, are, is your focus on temporal things? Are you storing your treasures up in heaven? This is also something worthy of consideration, folks, because you're gonna give an answer too about what you did. And it's not, a, it's not to condemn you, it's to encourage you that, that you know what? You have some contribution to make in heaven and it will determine where you are and where you're placed in that. How faithful you are here translates into eternity and where you, you know, what, what you do and, and the things that the Lord gives you. It's a reward for you and I. So be faithful to the call. If you're saved, stay on task. Don't miss the opportunities. Use everything that God presents in your life as a, as a way of knowing him more, uh, being strengthened in him, or being positioned to share the gospel with somebody. Be always on the lookout of what God is doing. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's word.